invite you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 32. You know, this uh, past October, of course, it was high school football season. And over in California, two high school teams were playing one another, Fairfield High School and Rodriguez High School. And uh, Rodriguez was driving the ball from their 30. And uh, the quarterback dropped back for a pass, and he let it, run, he let it uh, go. And, and one of the defenders from the other high school, from Fairfield High, intercepted the ball. He was a young player. Uh, first interception, he intercepted the ball, and immediately he started, you know, shucking and jiving and juking and, and spinning and getting away from the people trying to tackle him. And then he took off, and he ran 50 yards in the wrong direction. This happened just this last October. In fact, he was running, and, and uh, we've heard stories like this before. There's a video of it on, uh, on YouTube and on the Internet, TikTok, and different things. It's really interesting because he's running, and uh, once the other players on the other team realized he was going the wrong way, they kind of backed off. You know, They were kind of like, keep on going. You know, His players, his, his teammates were screaming at him. His coaches on the sidelines screaming at him to turn around and he didn't he just you know he's got his his goal set on on getting that getting to the goal line where he's running towards the wrong goal line luckily for them one of his teammates chased him down and tackled him at the 10 yard line before he got to uh, uh, to the other team's goal to score a safety and uh, uh, you know he, he didn't realize that he was running in the wrong direction uh, you know, he didn't realize that, that the direction he was headed was to put points on the board for the other team. He didn't realize that he was going the wrong way. You know, we live in a day and a time when folks uh, are picking up the ball, so to speak, and, 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 and they intend, many of them intend to do the right thing, but yet, yet they find themselves running in the wrong direction. Many of them who pick up the ball in the game of life are, are running and they think they're making the world a better place, but in reality, they are damaging that cause and not helping it. If you, if you watch that, uh, that, that video, you see, of course, his teammates run after him. The, the, other, uh, the other teammate tackles him. But you see the coach on the sideline. You know those high school football coaches, right? They just—they're just—they're going to scream, and they, you know some of them. And he's just screaming, and finally, when the the teammate puts him down on the ten yard line, he takes that headset off and he throws it down on the ground. And boy, he was mad. He was mad because because this kid uh, wasn't paying attention to things. He was mad because uh, because this kid did exactly the opposite of what he had told him to do. I'm sure they had trained him uh, to look up when you pick up a fumble or get an interception and, and, and run the right way. But even in that case, as he was running in the wrong direction, the coaching staff, everybody was screaming at him. And so the coach was just furious. He was so angry. When we pick up here in Jeremiah 32... God is in the process of expressing his anger to the nation of Judah. Um, we, we see here in, uh, in Jeremiah 32 that he is angry and he is disgusted what both Israel and Judah had been doing as nations at this point. 
uh, Israel, what was once the nation of Israel, has been broken off into two separate nations. There, were, uh, there was the, the, the tribe of Judah to the south, which, uh, which really the nation of Judah, that, which consisted of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Then all of the rest of the, the ten tribes were in the northern kingdom of Israel. So that kingdom kept the name Israel, and Judah broke off and took the name Judah as a nation. And, and so, and in the southern kingdom there of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar has laid siege to Jerusalem. This is the beginning of a war that would last about 20 years, and eventually Judah will be conquered by the Babylonian Empire in 586 B.C. And during all of this, uh, Jeremiah, uh, throughout this time leading up to this, and during this time, he had been preaching, and he had been trying to get the nation of Judah to turn around. He, he, over and over again, he was saying, what you're doing as a nation is not right. God is not happy with you. And so, over and over, he's preaching this message. Well, uh, he was kind of unpopular in that culture in that day. And so the king of Judah at the time, his name was Zedekiah. And, and, and uh, King Zedekiah uh, had Jeremiah under house arrest in the, in the palace. Had put him uh, under guard just to kind of keep him quiet and keep him out uh, from being out in the public. Because one of the things when this war started, Jeremiah was kind of saying, Hey, I told you this was going to happen. And, and guess what? Y'all ain't going to win this war. It's not going to end good for you, for you folks. So you can imagine Jeremiah is not very popular in the culture. And so he's, 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 in, he's sort of imprisoned in the palace under guard. And um, in Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah's cousin shows up. Uh, Jeremiah's cousin has some land in Judah that he wants Jeremiah to buy. It was a common practice. Uh, if you were in debt or you, you, you had some land that you could sell, you would go to uh, a, a nearest relative and that relative had the opportunity and in many cases was expected to buy that land. And so, so Jeremiah's cousin had this land. He shows up. God says, hey, your cousin's going to show up. He's going to want to sell you some land. I want you to buy it. So, so the cousin shows up, says, will you buy my property? Jeremiah says, sure. They, uh, they, they have, there's some transaction of, uh, of, of, of money and papers and all of these things. And, uh, and the prophet Jeremiah begins to pray to God. And he's, he's praying this prayer of, uh, of, Lord, I don't really understand what you're doing, but I trust you in this. Um, Lord, uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't really know why you have called me to buy this land. Because, by the way... Jeremiah knew how the war was going to end. And guess where the land was? It was in Judah. And, and so this investment, this monetary investment in this land is not a very financially wise decision when it's about to be nationalized by another nation. And so, so it, you know, it doesn't make sense on the outside, but Jeremiah's praying this prayer saying, Say, Lord, I, I, don't under, I don't understand what you're doing, but I do trust you. I did this because I trust you. And so one of the things, number one, is we get ready to, to jump in here to Scripture. Before we read Scripture, what we see in the first 25 verses is, is, is we have a reminder here that, that we don't have to understand everything about God in order to trust God. We don't have to understand. You don't ha always have to understand exactly why God is doing things the way that he is doing them, in order to trust him. When we pick up here at verse 26, 
God is responding to this prayer of Jeremiah that he has just prayed. So let's look here at the first few verses. Jeremiah 32, starting in verse 26. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Look, I am the Lord, the God over every creature. He says, is there anything too difficult for me? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to hand this city over to the Chaldeans and to Babylon's king Nebuchadnezzar, and he will capture it. The very first thing that we see in this passage is we see the evidence of a mighty God. Jeremiah already knew this, but God is, uh, God is responding to his prayer. And, and, and God is saying, listen, I, I know you have your doubts. I know you don't understand but keep in mind, I know that you know this, but I'm telling you again. I, I want you to understand, there's nothing that I can't do. He, he, says, he says, is there anything, is there anything too difficult for me? You see, you see, see we serve a mighty God. See, Jeremiah was living in difficult times. A time of war, a time where he himself was imprisoned. And not for doing anything wrong, but in fact, doing everything right. But yet he was in a difficult time. We live in a world today that is, that is, that is at times, can be very tough. It can be tough on us personally. It can be tough on us in our families. It, it can be, it, it, we live in a world that is very spiritually tough. Uh, we live in a world where, where it's, it's uh, very, very tough, very divided politically and socially. See, times are tough for the church as well. They're, they're tough for the family. They can be tough on individuals. And, and I want you to know this morning that the same God who shows up to Jeremiah in a very difficult, chaotic, very tough, tumultuous time in his life, the very God that, that, that showed up to bring him comfort, the mighty God that was there then, is the same mighty God that is here today. You know, Jeremiah, he's in the middle of a crisis. And I don't know if there's someone in this room who may be in the middle of some sort of crisis or someone that's struggling through making the right decision and trying and struggling through what the will of God is. Or maybe you know what the will of God is, but man, you're not sure if, if, if you have what it takes to... Uh, uh, to, to be able to accomplish that. And the truth is you don't. Really, uh, whatever God accomplishes, He accomplishes through His power. But it is, it is up to you and I to turn ourselves over to and to submit ourselves and our hearts to the leadership and the guidance and the strength of our mighty God. Think about it. God is mighty. He is the very God that Scripture says Spoke the universe into existence. I mean, he didn't even doesn't even say that he crafted all the plants. He just spoke and it was there. This is a mighty God, a powerful God. It says that he created and he put in place the moon and the stars. That everything you see in the heavens throughout the universe, as far as we can see, everything was put in place by God, ordained by Him, created by Him for His purposes. It says that they were made by the Word of the Lord. We serve a mighty God. 
He is, he is a, a light, and He is the light in a dark world. He is, he, is, he is the ultimate promise keeper. Not only does God speak, but He acts. His way is perfect. His word is flawless. His creation proclaims His glory. He is our rock and our salvation. There is no God besides Him because He is the mighty God in nothing. Nothing is impossible with him. Swan, Psalm 33, this is not on the board, but Psalm 33 says that the counsel of the Lord, his advice, his wisdom, his direction, his counsel stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen for his own possession. You know what that means? Man, put all that together and here's what it means. Our problems will never be too much for the mighty strength of God. There is nothing that you could ever face in your life that would ever be too much for the mighty power of God. Remember, he is the God of creation. He did it all. Nothing is too difficult for him. Max Lucado uh, once said that God is able to place stars in their sockets and suspend the sky like a curtain. Surely he's mighty enough to light your path. If God is big enough and powerful enough to have created all of this, man, he's big enough to, to, to lead the way. He's strong enough for you to depend on. We see First and foremost in this passage, a mighty God. But you know, we also see, we see evidence of an angry God. Let's pick up here in verse 29 and read verse 35. Let me find my place here. It says this, The Chaldeans who are going to fight against this city will come. Set this city on fire and burn it along with the houses where incense has been burned to Baal on their rooftops and where drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. From their youth, the Israelites and Judeans have done nothing but what is evil in my sight. They've done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands. This is the Lord's declaration for this city has caused my wrath and fury from the day it was built until now. I will therefore remove it from my presence because of all the evil the Israelites and Judeans have done to provoke me to anger. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, the men of Judah, and the residents of Jerusalem, they have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Though I taught them time and time again, they do not listen and receive discipline. They have placed their detestable things in the house that is called by my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Baal in the valley of, of Hinnom to make their sons and daughters pass through the fire to, to Molech, something I had not commanded them to do. I had never entertained the thought that they would do this detestable act causing Judah to sin. And so one of the things, the very first thing that, that, that we see is we, we look at a God who is 
angry. Notice who he is angry at. Does he say, I'm angry at the Chaldeans? Does he say, I'm really mad with those Babylonians who are attacking you? No. He's not, he's not angry at pagans acting like pagans. What he is angry about are people in a nation that was established by God, for God, for his purposes, his people acting like pagans. That is what he is upset about. Uh, he's furious that this nation uh, that, that was established for his glory is worshiping other deities worshiping pagan gods, false gods, demon gods. And he's furious that they are ignoring. He says, I've told you time and time and time again. And instead of turning your faces to me, in that you're saying, hey, I'm, I'm ready, Lord. I'm looking at you. Please lead me. They turn their back on him. And he is angry. You'll notice if you study this uh, very much, just this passage we just read, you could see that God is angry at the Judeans and the Israelites for how they are acting in, in various, uh, various different uh, aspects of their life. He's angry at how they act at home because he says, he says, in your home, these Chaldeans are going to destroy these homes where you walk into after being in temple and coming to worship me then you go in your homes and you climb up on your roof where you have set up an altar to a pagan god and you offer incense and drink offerings by the way those are things that were reserved for the worship of god those are things that uh that are symbolic of the sacrifice that god's messiah at this point would one day make and he says he says i'm upset with what you're doing in your homes he says in your homes you're acting like pagans he says you ought to be worshiping me and you're worshiping all these other things he's angry at their at their work life he's angry at their careers he he, he says uh he, he says the israelites and judeans in verse 30 from from their youth they've done nothing but was evil in my sight he says, they've done nothing but anger me with the work of their hands. You see, you see, the work and the careers that they were doing, the work that they were doing out in the community, uh, it, it wasn't about glorifying God. It wasn't God-led work. Listen, there's nothing wrong with work. God, doesn't, God tells us to work hard. He tells us to do all, the, all the, our tasks just as we were serving the Lord, uh, as we were doing it for Christ in person. But listen... You and I have to be led by God. I mean, you can, you can work really hard and succeed at things that do not please God. And so he's angry that, uh, that their work is not for the glory of God, but for the glory of themselves, that they were not being led by God, but instead they were led by selfishness and pride. He was upset also in their government. Verses 32 to 36, he begins to talk about public officials. He says, your kings, your officials... He says, hey, even your kings and even your officials, I'm not happy with them. I'm not happy with, with, with how they are acting. I'm not happy with how they are leading. Because they are not leading you in a way that is a result of them being led by me. See, King Zedekiah was a very 
very unwise and very weak leader. Um, he, was, uh, he was unwise politically, both in his domestic policy, with how he treated his people, and unwise with his foreign policy, with how he interacted with other nations. He maintained uh, many of the policies in his kingship that led to the ultimate demise and death of his previous two predecessors. Uh, he maintained those policies um, in, in a nation established by God that is supposed to be led by God. He allowed and endorsed the worship of pagan gods. The public worship of pagan gods. Some of that worship includes things that are reserved for the God of Israel, like we already talked about the incense offerings, drink offerings, symbolic of the sacrifice that Jesus will make. And listen, you think about that, that's a slap in the face. God gave those things to us to be a blessing to us, to teach us about Him, and to commune with us. And yet they were doing those things in the name of other gods. Listen, that's called spiritual adultery. They, they worshipped these pagan gods different ways. Uh, at times they would participate in intimate and unnatural carnal acts that are forbidden by God. They would also uh, um, interact with one another in ways that are reserved for the holy bond between a husband and a wife. Uh, and in fact, you know, that's, to, that's typically done in private, but they would do these things not only uh, outside of the bonds of marriage, but they did them in high places where everyone could see. These are things that was being allowed in, in, in the culture. See, the, the, the morality of the culture was so greatly declined at that time. I mean, listen, if that's not enough, in, in the worship of another pagan god, which he specifically mentions, Molech, in the, in the worship of Molech, couples that had just had a baby would take that little bundle of joy, and usually it was their first baby, whether it be a boy or a girl, and they'd take that little, 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 little bundle of joy, and instead of taking it to the temple of the Lord and handing it to a representative of the Lord who would pronounce a blessing of God on that child, instead of doing that, they would, they would take that baby all uh, up to the high place where there was a statue of Molech, and Molech was a, was a pagan god. He had this like sort of uh, animal, lion-looking face, big, long nose, but he, he's supposed to look like a human, I guess, in other ways. He's sitting there on this, on this false throne with his arms out. And they would take that baby, and they would, they would place that, that little boy or that little girl in the arms of Molech. And then they'd step back. You see, they would take that baby, put it in the hands of Molech, and they would actually usually strap the baby in to the hands of Molech. And they'd step back, and underneath the hands of Molech, there was a big pile of wood. And they would step back, and somebody would light that fire, and they'd watch that baby burn alive as they worshipped a demon, pagan god. You understand why God is upset? You say, say, man, pastor, that's, that, that's evil. That's evil. How could anybody do something like that? They were taught and they were led to believe by ungodly sources and ungodly pagan influences, they were led to believe that if they would 
allow their child to be sacrificed to one of these pagan gods that that pagan deity would bring to them prosperity in the future. They were led to believe that, that by killing their own child that they would experience a better life. Does that sound familiar? Because that's exactly what our culture tells uh, young women today. That, hey, if you somehow end up pregnant, before you're, quote, ready, that what you need to do is just get rid of that baby so it don't mess up your future. That is what we are told that is, that, that is, that, that is what our, 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 our women are told. Look at all these crosses in here. And some out in the foyer as you go out, 61 crosses that we've put out this year. Each one of them represents a million children that have died in the womb since Roe versus Wade. And in fact, statistics... And numbers and studies show that there's actually, at this point, we're a little bit above 61. We're maybe at 61 and a half million babies that have died since Roe versus Wade. And listen, if you're in the room today, and, or maybe one day in the future you're listening to this online, this my, uh, we are not here to... Uh, uh, to guilt or to shame anybody that has, has been, been through that, anybody that has had an abortion. I, I'm here to tell you that there is a mighty and a faithful God who loves you. And although you can't change what's happened, if you turn to Him, He will forgive you, He will redeem you, He has a plan for your life, and He will use you in the days ahead. I recognize that many women who had abortions are victims of this deception. They've been deceived by, uh, by advisors and people that, that, that are in our community that, that we are told to trust. They've been deceived by pop culture, people they look up to. Even at a recent uh, a major award show, somebody received an award and said, boy, I sure am glad I had an abortion. I mean, that's not exactly what she said, but that's sort of what she said. I sure am glad that I didn't have that baby when I got pregnant all those years ago because I wouldn't be an Oscar winner today. I sure have prospered. Boy, I'm sure glad I did that. That's what we're seeing in pop culture and our media. Some of our politicians about a year ago, I think it was a, a year ago next week, that a, that a governor, a governor of one of the United States of America is on the radio talking about a, a, a potential uh, legislation that would not only allow late-term abortions, but if somehow the baby was accidentally born, and in those first few hours or whatever it might be, the mother decides she doesn't want the baby. It's not, well, let's, let's give it up for adoption to couples who are, 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 are aching to raise a child and to love a child. No, they said that in that case, they killed the baby right there. Outside the womb. Outside the womb. Listen, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And it's very confusing to, to teenagers and to young women and even, uh, e even ladies that have done life to have been counseled in that, in that way 
by people that are representatives of a nation whose motto is, in God we trust. Listen, friends, we live in difficult days. I don't want to resurface things. Maybe someone's in here and, and you went through that and years ago you, you did business with God about that and you've got right with God and you're walking with the Lord. This is not about opening up that scab and trying to make you feel bad all over again because again there is a God who loves you and he is right here. He is a mighty God and, and he is a faithful God and, 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 and if you will turn to him and trust him, you have to know nothing is too difficult for him. But to say that because we live in a world where many, many are considering every day, many consider abortions, many are having abortions, um, many are supporting the causes of abortion. And um, I want you to understand as we read this scripture, we see, we, we, we see what happens to a nation who supports the unlawful and unjust killing of their children. You see, abortion angers God, and it leads to national crisis. I mean, it does. It leads to national crisis. You say, well, Pastor, that's not exactly the same thing. I mean, you know, the baby in the womb, a baby outside the womb. Some say life doesn't begin until the baby takes its first breath. Well... Some do. Some do say that. That's true. There are some people who say, well, hey, it's all okay because the baby's not a person until it takes its first breath. Well, that all sounds good, but the question is, is what does the Word of God say? Because, see, I am not the standard. You are not the standard. God is the standard. What does it say? Well, uh, what does it say about the unborn? Well, we see in Psalm 139... Um, that the psalmist says to the Lord, you knit me together in my mother's womb. We see that God forms the unborn in the womb. Jeremiah uh, uh, chapter 1, you go back to the very first of this book of Jeremiah. Um, God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you, uh, personhood, Okay, I set you apart. I called you to be my prophet when you were in the womb. You go to the book of Exodus, you see, um, uh, this is not on the board, but in Exodus 21, you see some instructions. Many of you have heard uh, people say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That comes from Exodus 21, where God is giving instructions. And he says, if there's a situation where two men are fighting about something, and there is a woman that is pregnant, and she is injured as a result of of, uh, of the fighting, of, uh, if, if the baby dies, he says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life, a life. See, life begins in the womb. That's what the Word of God teaches us. M most of the people that hold to that, uh, that, um, that belief also believe that, that it actually begins at conception. A lot of people say, well, Pastor, what about the cases where, where the mother is in danger? And what if the woman has been the victim of incest or assault? And, and I would say to you, that is a very difficult situation. I don't know that there is a perfect answer to that situation. But before you even begin talking about that, you've got to realize that that only happens in 
of the abortions that are committed in the United States of America. And that's a, that's a very generous, generous number. It's actually less than 2%. All these cases, all the what ifs, what ifs, what abouts, two cases. Which means 98% of the people are having abortion. For 98% of them, it's not a health issue. It's a lifestyle issue. Listen, folks, no matter what people say in Hollywood, no matter what people say in our culture, taking the life of an unborn child will never, ever solve your problem. It will only complicate it. Because the unreported truth is that many women and, and even men and families of people who have been through the process of abortion suffer through emotional and traumatic stress, spiritual stress. Listen, there is hope in Christ. You don't want to miss out on what God is going to do. Listen, I'm reminded that just because you can't see how something works out doesn't mean it's not going to work out. Just because I can't see the answer, just because I can't see the reason, just because I can't understand, it doesn't mean that God is not in Control. It doesn't mean that God suddenly doesn't have a plan because He is a mighty God. If every woman who is advised to have an abortion since Roe versus Wade would have had abortions, there would be no Tim Tebow. You wouldn't have the music of Celine Dion or Justin Bieber. Yeah, the Biebs. He was almost aborted. They told his mother she should abort him. She was 17 years old. She had been through a lot of abuse. She was addicted to alcohol and drugs. People were saying, you you can't have that baby. Don't bring that baby into that. And while maybe, you know, some could have argued or tried to convince her, maybe give him up for adoption or whatever, it was her faith in God and her belief in the doctrines of the Bible that uh, prevented her from having that abortion. How many of you have an iPhone or a smartphone? Anybody have one of these things? Steve Jobs. His mother was in a very difficult situation. His biological mother. She could have aborted him. But she chose not to. She chose to give birth and give him up for adoption. And here he is keeping time for me right here. Think about all the things, so many things we would be missing out on if every woman, uh, if every woman took that advice. See, in, in, in the nation, in our nation, we're not just headed in the wrong way on the football field, but also in the interstate of life. This last Thursday, out in California, a young woman in her late 20s got confused. For whatever reason, she got on... The interstate, I think it was Interstate I-880, I believe it was, and drove five miles in the wrong direction until she crashed head-on with a car going the right way, and she died. You see, the issue of where does life begin in God's standard, in God's way, it's more than just scoring points for one team or the other. There are lives at stake. I want you to know that uh, 
uh, that, that if you have been through that, if you have had an abortion, uh, again, God loves you. There is forgiveness and healing in Christ. But as believers, we need to educate ourselves on what the Word of God says. What is the standard of God for my life? I want you to see this, and I'll come back and, and, uh, and talk. There was a 17-year-old girl that was raped by an 18-year-old guy. And as a result of the rape, she became pregnant. And a lot of people say she needed to have an abortion. But this 17-year-old girl decided not to have an abortion. She decided to have the baby. Nine months later, she had a six and a half pound baby boy. And that baby boy is me. And I want you to know I'm not here today by accident. Just like you're not here by accident. But, but I didn't understand that. I didn't realize that until one day I was sitting in church. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't go to church much. And when I did go, I usually didn't pay attention. And I heard for the first time in my life, that God loved me and cared about me. I didn't know that God knew my zip code, much less he loved and cared about me. But the guy that was talking that day said that I had a problem. I was thinking, I don't have a problem. He said, the problem is the Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Because I've sinned, I deserve to die and go to hell. I thought if I was good or went to church, that would get me to heaven. But according to what the Bible says, it's not going to get me to heaven. <laughs> well, I didn't want to go to hell. He said, you don't have to go to hell. He said, God loved you so much, he sent his son Jesus out of heaven, down this earth, down the cross to pay for your sins. And if you're willing to repent and turn from your sins, admit to God that you've messed up, you've blown it. Say, God, I want to ask for forgiveness. And he said, the Bible says in Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I was like, you know what? I want to do that because I, I need my life to change. Something is wrong. He said, if you're interested in doing that, you can pray a prayer with me. It goes something like this. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've blown it. And I want to ask you to forgive me my sins. And I turn from my sins. And I invite you into my life to be my boss and my Lord and my Savior. Thank you for saving me and thank you for changing my life. And I'm going to tell you, since then, I have never again been the same. He changed my life. He gave me peace. He gave me purpose. He gave me meaning. And I'm no more special than anybody else. What he did for me, he can do for you. It's nothing magical. It's not a formula. You're just admitting to God that you've messed up, you've blown it, and you, you're committing your life to him because you know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. This guy's name is Ronnie Hill. He's a good friend of mine. Tremendous evangelist. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people come to know the Lord because uh, God uses him in that unique way. In fact, uh, at a critical time in my life, although I was already a believer, I called Ronnie and we were talking about some things and he gave me some critical advice that set me forth on a path that led me to reconnect with Leah and led me on a path where she and I would begin dating, led me on a path where, where uh, I, I would be able to begin serving at a church that really trained me and loved me and, and, and really set me on a path that led me here today. So I, I'm telling you, listen, don't miss what God is going to do. We serve a mighty God, and we, we serve a God at times that's angry. We see an angry God in this passage. And if you read on, if you read on past verse 36 to the end of the chapter, you'll see that he is a gracious God because he has a plan. He has a plan. It's a plan of redemption. It's a covenant where he says, hey, you've messed up. You've messed up. But, and I know that. And if you are willing to trust in me, I will redeem you. I will be your God and you will be my people. See, God is gracious. He is so awesome. 
And no matter what you have done and where you have been, he offers forgiveness to you. Let's pray.